You are listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Creatures of the Light by Sophie Wenzel Ellis. Performed by Miranda Johnson. Part 2. The vertical rising aircraft perfected, explained Dr. Mudson. But what would you think if I told you there is not an ounce of gasoline in my aircraft? I shouldn't be surprised. An electrical genius would seek for a less obsolete source of power. In the bright flare of the electric lights, the scientist's ugly face flushed. The man who harnesses the sun rules the world. He can make the desert places bloom, the frozen poles balmy and verdant. You, John Northwood, are one of the very few to fly in a machine operated solely by electrical energy from the sun's rays. Are you telling me that this airship is operated with power from the sun? Yes. And I cannot take credit for its invention, he sighed. The dream was mine, but a greater brain developed it. A brain that may be greater than I suspect. His face grew suddenly graver. A little later, Northwood said, It seems that we must be making fabulous speed. Perhaps. Dr. Mudson worked with the controls. Here, I've cut her down to the average speed of the ordinary plane. Now you can see a bit of the night scenery. Northwood peeped out the thick glass porthole. Far below, he saw two tiny streaks of light, one smooth and stationary, the other wavering, as though it were a reflection in water. That can't be a lighthouse, he cried. The scientist glanced out. It is. We're approaching the Florida Keys. Impossible. We've been traveling less than an hour. But, my young friend, do you realize that my sunship has a speed of over 1,000 miles an hour? How much over? I dare not tell you. Throughout the night, Northwood sat beside Dr. Mudson, watching his deft fingers control the simple-looking buttons and levers. So fast was their flight now, through the portholes, sky and earth looked the same. Dark gray films of emptiness. The continuous, weird whistle from the hidden mechanism of the sunship was like the drone of a monster insect, monotonous and soporific during the long intervals when the scientist was too busy with his controls to engage in conversation. For some reason that he could not explain, Northwood had an aversion to going into the sleeping apartment behind the control room. Then towards morning, when the suddenly falling temperature struck a biting chill throughout the sunship, Northwood, going into the cabin for fur coats, discovered why his mind and body shrank in horror from the cabin. After he had procured the fur coats from a closet, he paused a moment in the privacy of the cabin to look at Athalia's picture. Every nerve in his body leaped to meet the magnetism of her beautiful eyes. Never had Mary Burns stirred emotion in him like this. He hung over Mary's picture, wistfully, hoping, almost prayerfully, that he could react to her as he did to Athalia. But her pale, over-intellectual face left him cold. Cad! He ground out between his teeth. 
for getting her so soon. The two pictures were lying side by side on a little table. Suddenly, an obscure noise in the room caught his attention. It was more vibration than noise, for small sounds could scarcely be heard above the whistle of the sunship. A slight compression of the air against his neck gave him the eerie feeling that someone was standing close behind him. He wheeled and looked over his shoulder. Half ashamed of his startled gesture, he again turned to his pictures. Then a sharp cry broke from him. Athalia's picture was gone. He searched for it everywhere in the room, in his own pockets, under the furniture. It was nowhere to be found. In sudden, overpowering horror, he seized the fur coats and returned to the control room. Dr. Mudson was changing the speed. Look out the window, he called to Northwood. The young man looked. Day had come, and now that the sunship was flying at a moderate speed, the ocean beneath was plainly visible, and its entire surface was covered with broken floats of ice and small, ragged icebergs. He seized a telescope and focused it below. A typical polar scene met his eyes. Penguins strutted about on cakes of ice, a whale blowing in the icy water. A part of the Antarctic that has never been explored, said Dr. Mudson. And there, just showing on the horizon, is the Great Ice Barrier. His characteristic smile lightened his morose eyes. I am enough of the dramatist to wish you to be impressed with what I shall show you within less than an hour. Accordingly, I shall make a landing and let you feel polar ice under your feet. After less than a minute's search, Dr. Mudson found a suitable place on the ice for a landing, and, with a few deft manipulations of the controls, brought the sunship swooping down like an eagle on its prey. For a long moment after the scientist had stepped out on the ice, Northwood paused at the door. His feet were chained by a strange reluctance to enter this white, dead wilderness of ice. But Dr. Mudson's impatient, Ready? drew him from one last glance at the cozy interior of the sunship before he, too, went out into the frozen stillness. They left the sunship resting on the ice like a fallen silver moon while they wandered to the edge of the barrier and looked at the gray, narrow stretch of sea between the ice pack and the high cliffs of the barrier. The sun of the commencing six months Antarctic day was a low, cold ball whose slanted rays struck the ice with blinding whiteness. There were constant falls of ice from the barrier, which thundered into the ocean amid great clouds of ice smoke that lingered like wraiths around the edge. It was a scene of loneliness and waiting death. "'What's that?' exclaimed the scientist suddenly. Out of the white silence shrilled a low whistle, a familiar whistle. Both men wheeled toward the sunship. Before their horrified eyes, the great sphere jerked and glided up and swerved into the heavens. Up it soared. Then, gaining speed, it swung into the blue distance until, in a moment, it was a tiny star that flickered out even as they watched. Both men screamed and cursed and flung up their arms despairingly, 
A penguin, attracted by their cries, waddled solemnly over to them and regarded them with human-like curiosity. Stranded in the coldest spot on Earth, groaned the scientist. Why did it start itself, Dr. Mudson? Northwood narrowed his eyes as he spoke. It didn't. The scientist's huge face, red from cold, quivered with helpless rage. Human hands started it. What? Whose hands? Ah, do I know? His Teutonic accent grew more pronounced, as it always did when he was under emotional stress. Somebody whose brain is better than mine. Somebody who found a way to hide away from our eyes. I got. Ah, let me think. His great head sank between his shoulders, giving him, in his fur suit, the grotesque appearance of a friendly brown bear. Dr. Mudson, said Northwood suddenly, did you have an enemy, a man with a face and body of a pagan god, a great creature with eyes as cold and cruel as the ice under our feet? Wait. The huge round head jerked up. How do you know about Adam? You have not seen him. You won't see him until we arrive at our destination. But I have seen him. He was sitting not thirty feet from you in the Mad Hatter's Club last night. Didn't you know? He followed me to the street, spoke to me, and then... Northwood stopped. How could he let the insane words pass his lips? Then what? Speak up. Northwood laughed nervously. It uh, sounds foolish, but I saw him vanish. Like that. He snapped his fingers. All the ruddy color drained from the scientist's face. As though talking to himself, he continued. Then it is true. As he said, he has crossed the bridge. He has reached the light. And now he comes to see the world he will conquer. Came unseen when I refused my permission. He was silent for a long time, pondering. Then he turned passionately to Northwood. John Northwood, kill me. I have brought a new horror into the world. From the unborn future, I have snatched a creature who has reached the light too soon. Kill me. He bowed his great shaggy head. What do you mean, Dr. Mudson? That this Adam has arrived at a point in evolution beyond this age? Yes. Think of it. I visioned god-like creatures with the souls of gods. But heaven help us. Man will always be man. Always will lust for conquest. You and I, Northwood, and all others are barbarians to Adam. He and his kind will do what men always do to barbarians. Conquer and kill. Are there more like him? Northwood struggled with a smile of unbelief. I don't know. I did not know that Adam had reached a point so near the ultimate. But you have seen. 
Already he is able to set aside what we call natural laws. Northwood looked closely at the scientist. The man was surely mad, mad in this desert of white death. Come, he said cheerfully. Let's build an igloo. We can live on penguins for days. And who knows what may rescue us. For three hours, the two worked at cutting ice blocks. With snow for mortar, they built a crude shelter, which enabled them to rest out of the cold breath of the spiral polar winds that blew from the south. Dr. Mudson was sitting at the door of their hut, moodily pulling at his pipe. As though a fit had seized him, he leaped up and let his pipe fall to the ice. Look, he shouted, the sun ship. It seemed but a moment before the tiny speck on the horizon had swept overhead, a silver comet on the grayish-blue polar sky. In another moment, it had swooped down, eagle-wise, scarcely fifty feet from the ice hut. Dr. Mudson and Northwood ran forward. From the metal sphere stepped the stranger of the Mad Hatter Club. His tall, straight form, erect and slim, swung toward them over the ice. Adam! shouted Dr. Mudson. What does this mean? How dare you? Adam's laugh was like the happy demonstration of a boy. <laughs> so, you think you are still master? You think I returned because I reverenced you yet? Hate shot viciously through the freezing blue eyes. You worm of the dark age! Northwood shuddered. He had heard those strange words addressed to himself scarcely more than twelve hours ago. Adam was still speaking. With a thought, I could annihilate you where you are standing. But I have use for you. Get in. He swept his hand to the sunship. Both men hesitated. Then Northwood strode forward until he was within three feet of Adam. They stood thus, eyeing each other, like two splendid beings. Adam, blonde as a Viking. Northwood, dark and vital. Just what is your game? demanded Northwood. The icy eyes shot forth a gleam like lightning. I needn't tell you, of course. But I may as well let you suffer over the knowledge. He curled his lips with superb scorn. I have one human weakness. I want Athalia. The icy eyes warmed for a fleeting second. She is anticipating her meeting with you. Bah! The taste of these women of the Dark Age. I could kill you, of course, but that would only inflame her. So... I take you to her, thrust you down her throat. When she sees you, she will fly to me. He spread his magnificent chest. Adam! Dr. Mudson's face was drenched with anger. What of Eve? Who are you to question my actions? What a fool you were to let me, whom you forced into life, thousands of years too soon, grow more powerful than you. 
before I am through with all of you petty creatures of the Dark Age. You will call me more terrible than your Jehovah. For see what you have called forth from unborn time. He vanished. Before the startled men could recover from the shock of it, the vibrant, too-new voice went on. I am sorry for you, Dr. Mudson, because, like you, I need specimens for my experiments. What a splendid specimen you will be. <laughs> His laugh was ugly with significance. Get in, worms. Unseen hands cuffed and pushed them into the sunship. Inside, Dr. Mudson stumbled into the control room, white and drawn of face, his great brain seemingly paralyzed by the catastrophe. You needn't attempt tricks, went on the voice. I am watching you both. You cannot even hide your thoughts from me. And thus began the strange continuation of the journey. Not once in that wild half-hour's rush over the polar ice clouds did they see Adam. They saw and heard only the weird signs of his presence. A puffing cigar hanging in midair. A glass of water swinging to unseen lips. A ghostly voice hurling threats and insults at them. Once the scientist whispered, Don't cross him. It is useless. John Northwood? You will have to fight a demigod for your woman. Because of the terrific speed of the sunship, Northwood could distinguish nothing of the topographical details below. At the end of half an hour, the scientist slowed enough to point out a tall range of snow-covered mountains, over which hovered a play of colored lights, like the Aurora Australis. Behind those mountains is our destination. Almost in a moment, the sunship had soared over the peaks. Dr. Munson kept the speed low enough for Northwood to see the splendid view below. In the giant cup formed by the encircling mountain range was a green valley of tropical luxuriance. Stretches of dense forest swept half up the mountains and filled the valley cup with tangled vegetation. In the center, surrounded by a broad field and a narrow ring of woods, towered a group of buildings. From the largest, which was circular, came the aurora-like radiance that formed an umbrella of light over the entire valley. Do I guess right that the light is responsible for this oasis in the ice? Yes, said Dr. Mudson. In your American slang, it is canned sunshine, containing an overabundance of certain rays, especially the life ray which I have isolated. He smiled proudly. You needn't look startled, my friend. Some of the most common things store sunlight. On very dark nights, if you have sharp eyes, you can see the radiance given off by certain flowers, which many naturalists say is trapped sunshine. The familiar nasturtium and the marigold opened for me the way to hold sunshine against the long polar night, for they taught me how to apply the Einstein theory of bent light. Stated simply, during the polar night, when the sun is hidden over the rim of the world, we steal some of its rays. 
During the polar day, we concentrate the light. But could stored sunshine alone give enough warmth for the luxuriant growth of those jungles? An overabundance of the life ray is responsible for the miraculous growth of all life in New Eden. The life ray is nature's most powerful force. Yet nature is often paradoxical in her use of her powers. In New Eden, we have forced the powers of creation to take ascendancy over the powers of destruction. At Northwood's sudden start, the scientists laughed and continued. Is it not a pity that nature left alone requires twenty years to make a man who begins to die in another ten years? Such waste is not tolerated in New Eden, where supermen and superwomen are younger than babes and, come worms, let's land. It was Adam's voice. Suddenly he materialized. They were in a world of golden sunlight, warmth, and tropical vegetation. The field on which they had landed was covered with a velvety green growth of very soft, fine-bladed grass, sprinkled with tiny, star-shaped blue flowers. A balmy, sweet-scented wind, downy as the breeze of a dream, blew gently along the grass and tingled against Northwood's skin refreshingly. Almost instantly he had the sensation of perfect well-being, and this feeling of physical perfection was part of the ecstasy that seemed to pervade the entire valley. Grass and breeze and golden skylight were saturated with the strange ether of joyousness. At one end of the field was a dense jungle, cut through by a road that led to the towering building from which, while above in the sunship, they had seen the golden light shine. From the jungle road came a man and a woman, Large, handsome people, whose flesh and eyes had the sinister newness of Adam's. Even before they came close enough to speak, Northwood was aware that, while they seemed of Adam's breed, they were yet unlike him. The difference was psychological rather than physical. They lacked the aura of hate and horror that surrounded Adam. The woman drew Adam's head down and kissed him affectionately on both cheeks. Adam, from his towering height, patted her shoulder impatiently and said, Run on back to the laboratory, Grandmother. We're following soon. You have some new human embryos, I believe you told me this morning. Four fine specimens, two of them being your sister's twins. Splendid. I was sure that creation had stopped with my generation. I must see them. He turned to the scientists and Northwood. You needn't try to leave this spot. Of course I shall know instantly and deal with you in my own way. Wait here. He strode over the emerald grass on the heels of the woman. Northwood asked, Why does he call that girl grandmother? Because she is his ancestress, he stirred uneasily. She is of the first generation brought forth in the laboratory, and is no different from you or I, except that, at the age of five years, she is the ancestress of twenty generations. My God, muttered Northwood. Don't start being horrified, my friend, 
Forget about so-called natural laws while you are in New Eden. Remember, here we have isolated the life ray. But look, here comes your failure. You have been listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Creatures of the Light, written by Sophie Wenzel Ellis, performed by Miranda Johnson. Part 3 coming soon. If you have enjoyed this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Auditory Entertainments. Thank you for listening.